Hey, so it is uh, March 3rd, 2019. I want to start off by saying how excited I am for the victorious spirit that you guys have cultivated. It's almost like you have taken a drink from the victorious King Jesus well. Do you feel that in here? I also wanted to extend a special greeting to our friends from Submission Ministries. Who in here loves Pastor Lamb? I have never seen Pastor Piro shut, so shut such extraordinary affection for somebody as Zach Lamb. In fact, the only person that rivals it is his wife, Jessica, and her parents and family are here with us today. Somebody turn around and hug them. Assad, you Lion King, give him a hug. Oh, man. Amen. Amen. Look, Submission Ministries is, uh, is an extraordinary ministry, and this will be much like Zeke. We're standing in the pulpit, only a less handsome version. So you, you'll be able to concentrate on the actual word instead of those stunning blue eyes that guy's got, right? Everywhere we go in the world, people notice him. Look, we want to start by continuing our series today. We, uh, we've been in a series, we're on our fourth message. The series has been called Master Shipbuilder. We first looked at becoming a master shipbuilder. Our goal was to note that it is a deliberate process. It must be completed for you to become a master shipbuilder. How many of you want to be good at what you're doing? Yes. Amen. We considered that Noah was probably not a master shipbuilder when he started building the ark. But by the time he brought it to completion, he surely was. Hey, you know Ham tried to mess that ship up. (laughs) Yeah, you're not lying. We learned to set our faces like flint towards completing the task that God has empowered, anointed, and assigned us to do. No matter what the Hams of this world do, because there will always be some. In our next series, next message in the series, we looked at fellowship. The emphasis of that message is that fellowship for the believer is like the sail of a great ship where the material must be woven tightly. It must be completely unified. You have to be moved by the Holy Spirit's wind to create any forward movement in the kingdom. How important is fellowship? Here at LCM, in fact, across the entire one association of churches, we're learning to raise the sails of fellowship. To become even more tightly knit together. We want to close the gaps between lives. Close the gap between churches. And let the wind of the Holy Spirit create a movement in the body of Christ that advances the kingdom around the world. Man, hasn't this been a good series, church? Last week was phenomenal. Last week was foundational. Last week was a type of message that we're going to be listening to for years. We looked at leadership of the armed armada. We discussed all leadership involving both friendship and stewardship. Pastorship being both a guardianship and a relationship. Eldership being both a sponsorship and a partnership. Man, wasn't that good? And finally, the apostleship, which is the governorship of the craftsmanship. 
That's important because today our series will flow right with that. The message is called the battleship of our faith. Our prayer throughout this series is quite literally to get our ships together. Amen. Hey church, as we get into this word, I want you to think of something. What do you think when we think about God? What are the images that go through your mind when you think about God? Some people, they come with the preconceived concept that our God is like Zeus on Mount Olympus mm. or maybe one of the other Greek gods. Every once in a while, it's more abstract than that. It's like the cover of a book with a sweet little sunrise on it. Or how many times have you heard somebody talking about the old man upstairs, right? The guy with white hair and a beard that pulls all the levers. Or when you think of God, do you have Morgan Freeman's voice running through your mind? Bruce, I'm up here. In our travels around the world, we've noticed that for many people, the image that they have of God is from Psalm 23. And so there is a very white Jesus with an even whiter little lamb draped around his neck. And when they think of God, that's what they think of. For others yet, he's some kind of spiritual Santa Claus or cosmic genie somewhere up in the heavens there to meet their every wish. You know, even in one popular movie, Jesus is viewed as an eight pound, 11 ounce baby who wears a golden diaper. The biblical imagery is nothing like popular culture's imagery. And when we say these things, we're meaning to poke fun at them. Our view of God must be derived from the book that contains his word, that is his word. Your view of the character of God must start there. Everything about our concept of who he is has got to be completely consistent with the word that reveals him. Wouldn't you say amen to that? Amen. Biblical imagery starts with things like Exodus 15. We're going to go through some of these in kind of a rapid fire way to give you an overview. Exodus 15.3 says the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. You know, the first and primary picture you ought to have of the Lord is he is a warrior. If you take a look at Psalm 24, verse 8. says, who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord in battle. Here we see that the Lord is a glorious king because of his strength in battle. Shocking to many people. In Psalm 78, in verse 65, the Lord is an awakening warrior. He's filled with a wine-induced zeal. That's our God. <laughs> our king. Our master. Also one of our favorite songs. In Isaiah 42, verse 13, says the Lord will march out like a mighty man. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal. Man, anybody need your zeal stirred up this morning? With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. Here the Lord is viewed as leading a battle in triumph over enemies. As you continue through Isaiah, this theme is not dropped. It stays in almost every passage. Look at Isaiah 59 and verse 17. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The Lord is viewed as an unstoppable flood of wrath by the end of this passage. An armed warrior 
setting out to avenge himself. In the well-known passage in Exodus 12, 12, God spoke, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Man, here in this verse, God doesn't only deal with humans. He doesn't always deal with the sons of men and the daughters of men. He is a warrior God who brings judgment on the wicked gods of Egypt. Somebody, somebody's got to get excited about that. There is only one God, but he is called the most high God. There are lesser powers that are masquerading as God and he takes them to task and they are no match for him. That are to make you shout in the house of God. By the time you get into the newer Testament, you must understand these are not older Testament concepts. In fact, All of the promises of the Older Testament are still ongoing. Has anybody seen a lion laying down with a lamb outside? We we do not see the completeness of the kingdom promised in the Older Testament completed. Do you know what that means? It's not old. It's actually the ongoing testament. Just like the Newer Testament, look how Jesus carries this theme forward. It's Matthew 10, 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's right. It's surprising. Jesus, who people view as a gentle little lamb, said he came to bring a sword. Man, that is shocking, isn't it? Consider that opinion in the light of the majority opinion of so-called Christians today. As we move on to the writings in the Newer Testament, in 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, verse 7, it says, In truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Here, not only is God pictured as a warrior, and not only is Christ pictured with a sword, but the Christians who followed Him are portrayed as being armed with weapons of righteousness. Since our God is at war, the people of God are viewed as being in a war. By the time you get to the four chapters later in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 says, For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does, meaning not in the same manner. In other words, engaging in a war that is being waged is what Christians do. We just do it differently than the enemy does. If you go back to Isaiah 63, verse 3 through 6, you see imagery that the Bible depicts of God that is shocking to most people. Most who are looking into the character of God do not think of God as someone who is trotting the wine press, who is trampling down men in his anger, who has blood splattered on his garments, blood that has stained his clothing. The day of vengeance is in God's heart. And his own arm worked salvation and his own wrath sustained the writer. In the prophets, God is envisioned as being one who is splattered in the blood of his enemies while he is triumphing over them. Man, doesn't that go against the grain of what we had been taught mostly about God? It does, doesn't it? Now I'm taking many of your quiet, puzzled looks as confirmation that this is not usually how people view the Lord. In fact, we prefer to think of him much like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Mm -hmm. A big, squishy, loving, accept you completely as you are kind of God. 
Well, he will accept you as long as you will die so that he can transform you. The imagery of the Lord is set the way that it is so you understand the serious nature of what is at hand. How many of you love to think of Jesus returning on the white horse? Turn with me to Revelation 19. Everybody in the church. Say there when you're there. Three of you are there. Let's all get there. We're practicing a fellowship, a tightly knit sail. In Revelation 19, discover the 11th verse. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. Amen. Everybody loves that. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. That man got some forceful eyes, y'all. And it's on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. This is one of the most final images in the Bible narrative. And it is exactly what Isaiah described. A God clothed in righteousness but covered in the blood of his enemies. Except here he's envisioned as the word of God made flesh. He's dripping in the blood of the enemies that he has triumphed over. Oh, come on, say that says a lot about our leader, saints. He is the general of those with genuine faith. He is the leader of those who are led by the Spirit. He is the commander of the called. He is the admiral of the armed armada. Come on, do you want to get your battleship together this morning? Come on, do you want to follow this general? Do you want to follow this leader? Do you want to follow this commander and this admiral? In looking at the church world today, no wonder it's confusing. We've got playgrounds that we've built in our churches, complete with heated baptismals, coffee shots, shops, and donuts for the candied apple Christians who attend. You could get the impression that we're not on a battleship, we're on a pleasure cruiser. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, Pastor. Our disciples are here because they are tired of the carnival cruise lines. This flesh festival fleet is something we are all fleeing from. Is that right? Is that why you're here? You guys aren't on a carnival cruise, are you? See, I know that what Justin is saying is right. You have run with all of your might to the battleship of God. I want you to know that the battleship of God is actually called discipleship. The battleship is called discipleship. We are loading for a spiritual salvo that it will broadside the enemy and shipwreck sin in your life. And if the battleship of God is discipleship, then we need to look at the ships that accompany it, which is sonship. The discipleship isn't a membership. It's the best kind of sonship. Mm. Turn with me to Psalm 127 and say there when you're there. You can have a membership to a gym, but you can't have a sonship at a gym. Find the fourth verse. You can also be a member of a gym without ever attending, but you can't be a son of God without communion with him. (laughs) Psalm 127 verse 4 says, Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Mm -hmm. Think about this, saints. 
like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Who's the warrior? God. God is a warrior and the Lord is his name. God's arrows, or in this example, we're talking about a battleship, right church? This is akin to the 16-inch shells that are fired from the guns of a battleship. The arrows of one who is born to a warrior. Let's see what the sons of God are supposed to be like. Let's see how these arrows are supposed to look. Let's see how you are supposed to look as God's arrows in His hand. Let's not miss these connections. God is at war. He has a battleship that is called discipleship. Discipleship manifests itself in sonship. And here in the Psalms, what we are seeing is that a warrior with sons is like a warrior who has arrows. The arrows characteristics are the same as what a son of God must be. Mm. So we're going to do a few rapid fire, just like we did the character of God. So you get an idea in Psalm seven in verse 10, my shield is God most high who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword and he will bend his stringed bow he has prepared his deadly weapons he makes ready his flaming arrows get this god uses flaming arrows which are sons in the bible to shield and to save the upright his sons fight for the salvation of the upright in heart we go to war with spiritual powers to liberate people Oh, come on, church. What kind of arrows does he use? Flaming arrows. You want to be an arrow in God's hand? You have to be on fire as he launches you out. Psalm 18, verse 13 through 14 says, The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning and routed them. Mm. You see, God uses his sons. He uses his arrows to scatter his enemies. Man, discipleship is intended to bring you to a place where you are scattering God's enemies. He t- his sons, God's sons, take on the devil, and they do not hide in a hole hoping to avoid hardship. Come on, you aren't the kind that hide in a hole, are you? No. In Psalm 144, in verse 5, listen to the cry of the psalmist. Part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so they smoke. Send forth lightning and scatter the enemies. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me. In this psalm, you can see that God is using his arrows, his sons of lightning. Doesn't that have a nice ring to it? Yes. Sons of lightning to rescue the righteous. His sons join with their brothers. They're not willing to leave any behind in the battleship of faith. In Psalm 38, verse 1 through 2, the psalmist is writing, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows, arrows, church, or sons have pierced me and your hand has come down against me. Now think about that. God uses his arrows or his sons to rebuke, train, and discipline for righteousness. Man, how many times has a son of God come to you to rebuke, train, and discipline you for righteousness' sake? Don't reject those sons because that would be to reject God's arrows of discipleship in your life. Oh, my, my. And to do that, his sons have to handle his word with authority. 
one of the last psalms we want to cover on this subject, and then we'll slow down for you, having established that God is a warrior with arrows in his hands, and the arrows are sons, is Psalm 45 and verse 4. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously. In behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness, let your right hand, let your what? Right hand. Display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. In this psalm, what you're seeing is God's arrows or his sons are an extension of his own right hand. They're displaying his awesome deeds and piercing hearts. Man, come on. God's sons are not supposed to be dull, are they? No, No, they're supposed to be piercing men's hearts. Discipleship, follow me, discipleship is sonship and arrows are sons. So let's recap what the psalm said. Let's put that slide up on the screen for us. Arrows are sons. God's sons should fiery arrows that fight for the salvation of the upright. I want to make sure you heard that right. The man said fiery arrows, not fairy arrows. You could easily get the wrong idea from watching Christian TV. Because we don't see fiery arrows, but you might see a fairy arrow. If you move on to the second one, God's sons should be arrows that scatter enemies taking on the devil. Never hiding. Never hiding from the devil, but taking on the devil and scattering his kingdom. Amen. God's sons should be arrows of lightning rescuing the righteous. None left behind. We're not going to leave any behind, are we, church? No. No. Do you hear how courageous the warrior sons are presented as? They're not cowards who abandon people when it's difficult. They are a rescuing force on the earth. They leave none behind. Say none behind. None behind. And God's sons should be arrows that rebuke, train, and discipline Using the word with authority. Mm. Our last one says that God's sons should be piercing arrows that are his right hand displaying his deeds. Come on, do you want to be God's son? Do you want to be God's son? Then you're going to have to leave this building being fiery, fighting for the salvation of the upright, being arrows that scatter enemies taking on the devil, being arrows of lightning rescuing the righteous, being arrows that rebuke, train, and discipline, and being so piercing that you are as if you are His right hand displaying His deeds on the earth. Come on, that's how you have to leave here today, church. That's hardly the image of the modern Christian who works so hard to never say anything that could be taken wrong so he never actually says anything. It is hardly the way to build the largest, shallowest churches in history that anybody has ever built. Where you can fill a room with 5,000 people and there are not five men among the 5,000 who can do what the founder did who started it. Or denominations that are still reverencing someone that's been dead for 300 years because in 300 years their discipleship has not produced a single man like that. The glory of God is His sons. They're like arrows in His hands. An arrow that is passed down from generation to generation In fact, what we've read actually says that sons are the right hand of their father. Are you ready for this? Who is God's son in the Bible? Whoa, 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 whoa. Who's God's son in the Bible? God's son in the Bible. 
That's interesting. It is Why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 through 23. And we're going to read about God's firstborn son. While you're in Exodus 4, find the 22nd verse. Admittedly, we trapped you into that a little bit. Sometimes there's more than one right answer. But if you only think of one of the two answers, then you're excluding half of the truth. And we need to get to that. Recently, a man preached in our church about being a son of God. Most people think only about Jesus as a son of God. This is simply scripturally unfounded, though. In fact, in Exodus 4.22, listen to what the text says plainly. In 4.22, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. Who is the firstborn son? Israel. Israel. That's a whole nation, friends. Wow. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. Before Jesus was called the son of God, Israel was called the son of God. Jesus is an Israelite in the fullest expression of everything that Israel is to be. But a whole nation was destined to be sons of God. Do you know what this means for you? It means that we cannot simply hold Jesus up and say, because he did these things, he's in a class all of his own and we don't do them. In fact, Jesus himself said, you will do greater things. Do you know why? He was actually showing you the way through discipleship to sonship so you could participate in the battleship of God. He was not teaching us to simply acknowledge his accomplishments and then sit on our salvation. He was actually teaching us how to do what he does. See, Israel is the very first example of sonship. And therefore, it is an example of discipleship. Do you see how serious the scripture treats this topic? God says to Pharaoh, I will kill your son because of the way you have treated mine. We're in a war. We're on a battleship. God loves discipleship because he sees discipleship as sonship. It's never membership. If you have substituted membership... For discipleship and sonship, you're missing out on all that is the kingdom while sitting around those that are experiencing it. How many of you have a membership to something online and it's reoccurring? It charges your account. That means that you can go years without using it, but you're still considered a member exactly like the modern church. See, sonship though, you can't go even days without seeing your son. When you are in the family, then you are in another ship called relationship. We need to not build membership. We have to build sonship through discipleship. Think about how Israel entered into discipleship and sonship with God. Remember the story as Justin tells it and then relate it to you. So if we want to go into how Israel entered into discipleship, where are we going to go, church? Oh, come on. That's an easy one. We have any Acts 1 students in here? If we're going to read about the formation of Israel, where are you going to read about it? Genesis. Turn to Genesis chapter 32, verse 26. Say there when you're there. 
See, you've been taught that Genesis is about the creation of the world. That is not only a wrong perspective, it's a very Western perspective. How many chapters deal with the creation of the world in Genesis? Exactly one. There are 50 chapters in Genesis, and by chapter 12, the only thing we're talking about is the formation of the nation that God calls His Son. Discipleship is a sonship, friends, and it was meant to be a battleship and lay waste to the enemy. Membership creates pansy Christians that sit on their salvation and don't do anything. Come on. Come on. You guys in Genesis 32? Find the 26th verse and shout there when you're there. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Man, do you hear a tenacity in that? Jacob is wrestling with God and he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men, and have overcome. You mean there's struggle in this? Oh, there can't be struggle, Pastor. God no, would just never give me the easy. That. Give me the easy. Tell me more about some greasy grace, brother. Brother, God wouldn't demand anything that you can't handle. Oh, you mean I might have to depend on Him in the struggle? You might have to die. Oh, no. Nobody told me that when I got my membership. Was that on 59 and uh, Kirby? <laughs> I couldn't tell whether it was a circus, six flags, or something else. You see what's happening here in the formation of Israel. There is something that has to occur in Jacob before he can become Israel, a prince with God. Mm. What does the name Jacob commonly mean, church? Deceiver. Deceiver. Supplanter. Jacob was a deceiver or a, or a supplanter. Any of you guys ever been a deceiver or a supplanter? Yes. If you're and, not raising your hand right now, you're lying and practicing it. Hey, let's just practice this for a minute. Get your hand up if your nature has to be changed. Get your other hand up if you're not done yet. Now all of you are charismatic, Pentecostal, Holy Ghost, fire-breathing people. And if you were Baptist, that has now ceased. Jacob had to struggle and overcome with God and men. Man, that is wholly different than the membership that we see in most churches today. Mm. You see what happens when God is fashioning an arrow. What He does with that arrow is like iron sharpening iron. He is, he is sharpening that arrow, sharpening that arrow until it is piercingly sharp. And what causes men to run to memberships instead of discipleships is they would rather be a blunt object hitting a wall and breaking because they do not want to be sharpened by iron around them. This here is the transformation from Jacob to being a prince with God. Come on, a prince with God. And therefore, because of this, his descendants were princes with God. This is the constant wrestling with the character of God so that you will be blessed and transformed. Just like Israel wrestled with God and was blessed and transformed, we enter into the same promise where we wrestle with God and we are blessed and transformed. Discipleship, which is sonship. There is no separating the two. You do not have discipleship without sonship. And you don't have sonship without discipleship. Those two are a tandem is about struggling with God 
and men and overcoming in the struggle. Wrestling with God. Wrestling with God in His presence and overcoming with His help. With our Father's help. And wrestling with the world and overcoming. This is worth contemplating for a little bit. Because when we enter a church that draws a box on the wall and puts 14 points that you agree to before you've even read the book, you're not wrestling with anything. You might as well be a cookie cutter stamping out people who say that they believe something that they could never derive from their own understanding of the word. Doctrine is a fantastic thing, but it is a terrible master. See, it is meant to serve you. It is meant to aid in your understanding. It was never meant to be a substitute for your understanding. And what happens is in every successive generation, the men are getting smaller because they don't know how to hunt in the Word. They don't know how to engage the character of God. They've never struggled with Him. They've been told what to believe and every generation has retained less and less. Friends, we're going to turn that around today. Because there is a battleship that God is on. That battleship takes the process of discipleship and says, You know what? You could settle for membership, but I won't. I will transform you into my son. Whatever you were is not what you will be. I'm going to wrestle with you and make you wrestle with me so that there is a transformation that happens in you. Anybody want to wrestle with the living God? Let me tell you the truth. You can't win. And in recognizing that, you do win. In not giving up, He finishes what He started in you. But as soon as you sit on your hands and decide that it's already done, you've lost already. See, what I love about the nation of Israel is they struggled then. They struggled now. Most have counted them down, but let me tell you, they are not out. Micah 7.8 says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy, for though I have fallen, yet will I rise. Is there a man in here that believes in the resurrection power of God? Let me tell you, God didn't just raise His Son in the first century. He's still raising His Son that is the nation of Israel. They became a nation again in 1948, and they will reach a place of glorification with Him. The reason that we have no hope for Israel is we have no hope for ourselves. If we see ourselves as just old sinners that are not transformed, then we don't expect Israel to be transformed. We look at their state and we don't understand what God is doing. They are wrestling with Him. And God will cause them to be transformed. This was true of the patriarch. This is true of the nation now. And it is true of their destiny. And you know what? It's true in your life as well. If you are down today, if when you walked in here, this was difficult in hearing scriptures about warfare and bloodshed, if you thought, oh, I I don't know if that's what I signed up for, you signed up for a wrestling match with God in which you are promised to be crucified. If you weren't told that, then perhaps you were in a place that talks of membership rather than sonship. When people ask us, how many members do you have? I laugh. Say, we don't have a single member. We're just one big family. Well, how many people are you running? We don't run from anything, brother. Well, you know what I'm trying to ask. I do, and I'm giving you a hard time because you don't know what you're talking about. I want to tell you that the Apostle Paul understood these concepts. He understood them very well. Go with me to Romans 9. You're going to hear the same language. 
If it's new to you, I apologize to every other Christian you ever met before today. If it is not new to you, then I want to strengthen the seeds of what you already know. In Romans 9, beginning in verse 3, For I could wish. He didn't, but he could. It's like I could do the dishes, but I didn't. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Those of my own race. Sounds like Paul loved the nation of Israel. That's because he wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew. (laughs) He was a Jew who found Messiah and everyone else called him a Christian. Come on, his own race, church? His own race? We're not just talking about a hypothetical concept here. We are talking about an actual ethnic group that Paul is referring to. That ethnic group is named in verse 4. The people of Israel. Say it with me. Theirs. The antecedent to the pronoun theirs is Israel. The ethnic race of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. See, that ought not be a revelation to us. Because it is written plainly, right there in a single sentence. It's a revelation to us because we put America in the center of the world map. It's a revelation to us because when we found out that Gentiles could receive blessings like Israel, we decided that the book was about us. And then we quickly changed it into membership instead of sonship. And we got the idea... That you could be a member and inherit some place called heaven instead of fighting to bring heaven on earth because you wanted to reflect your father. You wanted his kingdom to go from there to here. In other words, men who were not sons corrupted the idea of sonship. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs, the divine glory. The covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. I love this part. I want to pause and just sit on it for a minute. Christ has a human ancestry. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Who is God over all. Forever praised. Amen. Look, Israel is the original adopted son. As a nation, it's true. How many of you have ever known a son that was disobedient? Yes, of course. How many of you are the son who is disobedient? And we sent a whole bunch of them to children's church. Christ is the ultimate Israeli. He is the right hand of God. This makes him effectively God over all, even though he is also in human form. This is why Matthew 2.15 is read, but not understood. Matthew 2.15 is quoting both the book of Exodus and the book of Hosea. And it says, out of Egypt, I called my son. How do you say that in 1500 BC and it is applied in the first century AD? Because Jesus is of the nation of Israel. And everything that happened to Israel also happened to Jesus. Hey, friends. When Jesus was persecuted, when Jesus was crucified, was that the end of the story? What happened on the third day? What happened on the third day? Then you can expect the very same thing to happen to the nation that he is the king of. Jesus is the king of Israel. He is the best example of discipleship that is really sonship. 
He is leading a battleship that is meant to overcome all the power of hell. Man, that is intense, church. You see, we cannot separate Jesus from Israel, and we cannot separate us from Jesus. Therefore, you can't separate us from Israel, because we are one in this together. Look at the promises given to Israel. We're going to go back to the beginning in Genesis 24, verse 59 through 60. Shout there when you're there. Oh, come on, that's it? What's wrong today? Are y'all down? Are you depressed? What's happening? Did you break an eyelash on the way to church? When you were two, did a leaf blow in the window, land on your foot, and you've never been the same since? What damaged you? Because you are a victor in Christ. Somebody stand up and say, I got victory. We are so used to sitting and soaking in church, so used to sitting and listening to a sage on a stage that we've become members. You are sons of the living God. Act like it. Respond to Him. You want to hear about the victory that God promised? Yes. In Genesis 24, verse 59, it says, They sent their sister Rebecca on her way along with her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Here it comes. Mm. Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. Yes. May your offspring yes. possess the gates of their enemies. Amen. Man, you remember in Psalm 127, what does God do with His arrows? He sends them out to contend in the gates. Yes, God sends His Son to go contend in the gate. And here, the promise given to the matriarch was that your descendants would possess the gates of their enemies. Yes. Now think about that for a second. A gate is not just a defensive structure. A gate is something that we must be contending with and we must be overcoming. When Jesus said... The gates of hell will not prevail. He's saying that the gates of hell will not be able to stand up under the attack of God's battleship, which is discipleship. That doesn't work if you view yourself as a safety deposit box, hiding the truth of God away from the world where nothing can harm you. See, powder puff Christianity will never get this done. It's going to take brazen men who have been fired by the altars of heaven, who are filled with His Word, filled with His Spirit, and they know that they were born to accomplish something. May your sons, plural, possess the gates of their enemy. Not a singular son. All victory is found in Jesus, and yet there are many victories to be won because of Jesus. Come on. Hey, think about this for a second. God promised Israel victory. He promised that they would possess the gates of their enemies. I'm thinking of a passage in Judges 3 that God intentionally left enemies so that the Israelites who did not know war would experience war and be able to be trained for war. Man, what prevents, what prevents us from entering in and taking the gates of our enemies? Perhaps it's the fact that we're scared to get up and go. Perhaps it's the fact that we're letting fear cripple us from taking what is rightfully Israel's and the church with Israel. Come on. Maybe God has left enemies for you to conquer so that He could teach you how to fight. So that He could teach you how to be a sharp arrow. So that He can launch you towards a target and you know what it feels like. Come on. 
You got to know what it feels like to get victory, church. You got to look through the scriptures. You got to see how God did it for Israel. And then you got to jump up and say, where's my turn? I'm a younger brother. I want mine. Come on, do you want to have victory in this place, church? Do you want to overcome the gates of hell? Then you're going to have to be sharpened through discipleship. You're going to have to stay on the battleship. You're going to have to not jump ship and plant yourself on the ship that God has told you to be in. We better get our ship together. I remember seeing Justin Treister at only 18 years old. Pitiful. (laughs) Quite pitiful. He looked like a little hippie out of time. (laughs) He'd come from a rock and roll background, but he'd been transformed. I could see something in his eyes. I asked him what his favorite scripture was, and I was shocked. It was the same as mine. He said, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my father. And because he was younger and I knew that God was putting us on a collision course, I said, and are you doing that, son? I had no idea that through the process of discipleship, he would actually become a son in this ministry. And aren't we all proud? See, this process works. It turns out pastors all over the world. It raises up leadership for the body of Christ. We don't need a new system, friends. We don't need to invent what we think is a better way to do it. All attempts at deviation are just that. They are deviant. And what happens is the church of Jesus Christ doesn't look like the one that he founded. And he is purifying his bride. He is restoring the truth of Christianity to the church because we have an enemy that we must contend with. Go with me to Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, we are in the foothills of Caesarea Philippi. We've just asked the question, who do men say that I am? We've heard every variant answer that can be given. And then the the teacher turns, the discipler. The rabbi turns to his Talmud, his disciple, and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? See, this is such an important thing. Because in verse 18, it says, and I tell you that you are Peter. This is after he gives his glorious answer. The revelation that came from heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates, somebody say gates, of Hades will not overcome it. See, as Peter realizes that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the most high God, as he gets a revelation from heaven, you have to ask, how did it come? Jesus called him. He said, follow me. Follow me. You with me? He said, follow me. And I will make you something. See, we are following, but we are not being made. We are not being transformed. Up until this point, Peter is following Jesus around. But at this moment, through the process of discipleship, something else is happening. He is being made into something. It's more than he is agreeing with Jesus. More than he is just following Jesus. All of a sudden, for the first time, the heavens are pierced. And he has heard himself from the throne of God. When is the last time you personally received a revelation that you know came from the throne? See, we come to church to hear what someone else has heard. Most of the time, they're just repeating what someone told them. That is not what discipleship is to do. 
That's what membership does. It gives you the party platform and you learn to repeat it. In fact, every week you hear the exact same thing that you already know, but in a new and exciting way. And we wonder why no one grows and why you have to bring in circus acts into the church and why you have to increase attendance through carnal means because no one is being transformed. What is happening right here in this passage is through the process of discipleship, Peter is learning about sonship. He is being born of heaven as heaven is speaking to him like a son. Are you hearing that? See, a son learns to recognize his father's voice. Can you imagine your son running to the neighbor's house to find out what you were saying to him? And yet that's what most Christian life looks like. I want to tell you that the entire reformation happened because there was a link in the chain between men and God. The Roman Catholic Church taught that you did not have the right to hear from God. You did not even have the right to interpret the scripture yourself. Protestants all over the world stood up and said, no, we will be led by the scripture alone. Sola scripture, we have the right to hear from God ourselves. And then we have degenerated immediately into a religious process that says, tell me what God says. It's too hard for me to find out. See, sons want to be close to their father. Peter, through the process of discipleship, has just learned about sonship. This revelation is quite literally turning the SS Peter into a warship. That's what's happening. He's following the battleship. He's learning about discipleship. He is on the sonship and he cannot wait to become a warship. I want to tell you, hell does not want you to get your ship together. But the sons of God, our ships are together. The scripture holds us together. The spirit holds us together. The spirit teaches us what to do, not just what to believe. That's membership. As the Spirit holds us together, we are becoming an armada. We are becoming a fleet of battleships through discipleship, which is sonship. When we turn to Matthew 28, verse 18, we are going to see where this fleet is headed. Real quick, Pastor, as you tell them where we're headed, I'm speaking prophetically about Pastor. I will take it. I believe that. I believe that very soon. He's turning to 18. I want to set the stage because I feel as if the serious nature of the word that I'm sharing and the zeal with which I am sharing it has taken a few of you softer hearts. And rather than encourage you, it's made you feel convicted. I want you to be convicted. I don't mind that at all. And I'm okay. As long as that one woman right there loves me and thinks I'm amazing, I'll do fine. (laughs) But I do want to interject something. In verse 17... Look what's happening. Right before we get to a great commission, it says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. You're not allowed to worship a human being, by the way. They worshipped him. That means he's more than a human being. What's the next part say? But some doubted. I want you to understand that never, not at any time in history, have the sons of God been perfect. There was only ever one perfect son of God. That's why the commission comes from him to us. But that is not an excuse to remain imperfect. You may be sitting in here today and at moments you're encouraged and at other moments you feel conviction because you know you are not doing what we're saying. Not doing what God is saying. 
A son wants to please his father and every father disciplines his son. See, what you're actually experiencing for the first time is the family of God. He is treating you and his spirit is treating you like a son. If what you hear is condemnation that says you're bad and will never get better, that's the devil's voice. If what you're feeling is the Holy Spirit saying something's got to change. Something's got to change. He's calling you to higher ground. He's elevating you to sonship. He's saying you can, you should, you will, you have to be like me. You have to. That's what this is aimed at. As we get to the great commission, which some have referred to as the great omission. Because they did more in the first century with the gospel than we have done in 19 centuries since. I'm not okay with that happening on our watch. As you get to the great commission, you are not a servant slave. You are a son with an obligation to represent your father's image. And I'm asking you to tune in in a special way. I'm asking you to listen to what Justin says in a special way. Because quite literally, if we don't do this, then you will eventually be meeting in a building under a crescent moon. Before we talk about Matthew, 8, Matthew 28, I want to read something to you. We're talking about sonship. When we talk about sonship, we think, we have to think what the father is like. See, many may have struggled with that concept of a father because might not have had a good father. True. So you have to go into the word and you have to see how the Lord is a father to us. Psalm 103, verse 8 says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. You see, God is in the shipbuilding business. God is building this ship. He is the ultimate master shipbuilder. And as God is building your life, He knows how you are formed. As a father, He has compassion on those who fear Him. That means if you fear God, you are allowing God to have His way with your life. You are allowing God to work in that process of shipbuilding into your life. And He has compassion on those who fear Him. You see, the Lord is well capable of using a hammer, using iron to strike iron. And he also knows how to polish the areas that need to be polished. Some in this building need to feel the hammer of God upon your steel. And others, God is working with a polishing cloth. Whatever the process that God is doing in your life, do not abandon the works of your hand. Like Psalm 138.8 says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for you, but you must not abandon the works of your hands. You must not. Otherwise, this ship will never get built. This ship will go on without you if you abandon the works of your hands. Where are we at? Matthew 28. Listen are to verse two of you in Matthew 28? Yeah. Cho, are you with us in Matthew 28? Yeah. Josephus is there. How about you, Spence? Man, Spence and all of that hair. Young Absalom is there. <laughs> verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make what? Disciples. Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, God is the general of those with genuine faith. He yes. is the leader of those who are led by the yes. Spirit. He is the commander of the called. And He is the admiral of the armed armada. And He is building a master ship. And therefore, that makes us master ship builders. Amen. We are in the Great Commission master ship builders. We are building discipleship through sonship. We're not making ships that will sink as soon as they hit the water. Who does that? Who spends the time? Who spends the money? Who spends, who invests in making a ship that's going to sink? We can't do that, church. We can't be invested in making members. Listen to this. We can't be invested in making members, adherents, or converts only. We have to be invested in making disciples. Disciples that will last. Disciples who will go and take this shipbuilding process and through sonship will make other ships that make other ships. That is the goal. That is the Great Commission. We are making sons that will fire on the gates of hell. Come on that now. is what we are doing. We are making sons that will take those 16-inch guns and light up the gates of hell with everything in them. See, Christianity was never supposed to be sterile. It was never supposed to be with one man who's an evangelist that had the ability to make other Christians, but every other Christian's job was to be some kind of plastic-covered, waxy fruit that does not produce any light. Every single Christian, everywhere was to engage in the great battleship of God by making discipleship a priority in their life. They do this because of their sonship. And they become warships. So the most basic thing in the world is what are you working towards? Is it your 401k? Is it your comfort? Do you just have different priorities? Are you on carnival cruise lines? Are you on the pleasure cruiser? Because the truth is, is war is raging all around us. People are dying and going to hell all around us. If you don't take that seriously, how can you take your own salvation seriously? Do we maybe need to circumcise our hearts, knock off some of the hardness of sin's deceitfulness? You know, we're under a full media barrage all of the time. That basically it's wrong for you to care enough about anyone to tell them that what they're doing is wrong. Can I tell you, Jesus didn't believe that. He was not at all politically correct. In fact, he so loved the Father that he spoke what the Father said and the world killed him for it. You know that. I know you know that. The question becomes, if they killed him for saying what the Father said, how were we getting along so well with the rest of the world? Could it be that we're not saying what our Father says? The answer is not membership, it's sonship. We're going to have to embrace the high call of Jesus Christ. We're going to have to die to our own ideas and ask Him exactly how He wants His worship to be made and function. We're in Hebrews 2 in some of the last scriptures of our day. Hebrews 2 in verse 10. Discipleship. Justin Johnson. 
Zeke Lamb, Nick Massey. It's kind of nice that we can go a whole sermon just naming the pastors that God has raised up in our midst. Show me another church this size that is that way. I'm sure they're out there, but not very many of them are in the United States. Here the church has become a business. The bride has become a business. There's a name for that. You just think on it for a minute. Hebrews 2 in verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory. How many? many. How many is many? As many as disciples you make. How many sons will he bring to glory? As many disciples as you make. See, it is not Jesus' job to make disciples. That's not his job. He gave that job to his body. That means you work for him, the head. He told you to make disciples. You know, Ephesians 4 teaches that he appoints apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. Where does he appoint them from? The disciples that you make. Have you ever considered that leadership is pretty bad worldwide because the number of disciples being made are of very poor quality? See, if we make disciples just like that right there, then they turn into sons and they turn into warships. And they're fantastic leadership because they were raised in the house of God correctly. That's what's at stake here. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, for whom and through whom, what is in your house that is not for him? What is in your life that did not come through him? See, everybody is fine with Christianity as long as it's not applied to you personally. In fact, we can say we're all sinners. We're all sinners and that, that means nobody's actually a sinner. We're all equal. It's the diffusion of responsibility. But what happens when the great discipler turns and says, what do you say? See, then membership doesn't cut it. It has to be a son having a conversation with his father. That's what it has to be. He wants to bring you somewhere. He wants to bring you to glory. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Get that straight. The battleship is headed somewhere. The battleship is headed to glory. It's headed to glory. But you know what stands between glory and the battleship? The perfection of suffering. See, we are perfected through suffering. And that shows that we are sonship. We sail on. If it's hard for you to hear a message on the subject, how hard will it be for you to live on the subject? Jesus Christ himself was perfected through suffering. He was shown to be perfect by what he endured. The trials in his life. The temptations in his life. Right up to Gethsemane. What are the trials showing you in your life? Are the trials in your life showing you that you've arrived or that you still have a ways to go? Because glory is ahead. 
The church has made the starting line, being born again, the finish line. Well, now that you're born again, you inherit eternity. That is a ridiculous concept. It's not that you don't inherit eternity when you're born again. It's that there's so much to do between now and then. See, sons, sons don't walk away from the father's work and not care what happens to it just because they're sons. In fact, the opposite is true. If anybody in here is old like me, I'll have six grandkids this year. A miraculous transformation happens. A teenage boy becomes one of the most insolent things that you'll ever find. Uh, if you aren't teenagers yet, this, I hope, doesn't scare you. Let me just tell you, theologically, no one knows when Satan fell, but he had to be about 15. That had to be about when it happened. But this thing happens as they become men, especially as they come to the place of fatherhood. Those sons come back. Because when you are producing life yourself, you start to appreciate the life that you were given in a whole new way. Something happens when Christians make other Christians. Something happens when you take responsibility to discipleship, to bring discipleship into someone else's life. It does something in you. This is why the, the epistles tell us to be active in sharing our faith. It's then that we are able to grab hold of the deep truths of the faith. Discipleship is about men who are determined to become like the divine. They're not just determined to recognize that he's divine. They're determined to participate in his divine nature, as Peter said. Discipleship is sonship. That's what it is. So what we're really talking about is a family of warships. This begs the question, did God call you to be his battle axe, his war club, as he did Jeremiah? Or do you have a special, unique calling not found anywhere in the Scripture to be God's butter knife? You're supposed to spread jelly on the hearts of people. Because you could easily get the impression with these limp-wristed pastors that cannot raise their voice, they can't give you a firm handshake, and they sure do not live outside, inside their home like they preach outside their home, and the proof is their children. You could easily get the impression that the church had been robbed of all power. Mm -hmm. That it had a form of godliness, but it had no actual power. The sons of God look and behave like God. And he is not the stay puff marshmallow man. If you are sinning, you should fear him and you should be scared to be in the presence of, of his sons. And you should come anyway because you want to be perfected. And what you'll find is those sons, they will help you be transformed through the process of discipleship. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if you're in a church and you're comfortable in your sin, that says a lot about you and the church that you're in. I'm glad that you're not comfortable in sin in here. We are not on a carnival cruise. I want the armed armada of the faith to follow the general of the genuine faith and him not to be ashamed to sail with us. Don't you want that? The last part of this verse says, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's leading you to glory and he is not ashamed if you will become a battleship, a warship, through discipleship, if you engage in sonship, he will not be ashamed of you. But I got to tell you, 
He is ashamed of membership. Church, you remember the story when Jesus is baptized, God's voice burst through the clouds, said, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Man, that's a beautiful moment, isn't it? How many of us would like God to say that about us? Man, that's all I want is for God to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, I'm not going to turn to it, but that reminds me of a very familiar passage in Hebrews that says, a son, though he was, he learned obedience by what he suffered. You see, the, the implication of, of that statement, a son though he was, seems to, to make you think that because he was a son, he didn't have to suffer. As if a father would look at a son and say, Oh no, I can't, I can't let this go on. I can't let this happen in his life because this is too much and this is going to damage him instead of cause him to grow. But that's not how God viewed Jesus. God viewed Jesus by allowing him to suffer because through that suffering, he learned obedience. Man, you want to be a polished ship. You want to be a warship in God's fleet. You're going to have to take a little bit of suffering to learn obedience. And man, it's tough. Suffering eliminates the superfluous. It makes sure that the ship moves through the water without drag. Sand is drag in your life. Suffering helps focus you on what God is focused on. I'm not a masochist. I'm not looking forward to any suffering. I don't invite it. I also just do not shy away from it. I am a son of God. Amen. Yes. What are we supposed to be, church? We're supposed to be overcomers. If we turn to Revelation 21, verse 7. Listen to, listen to what this says in the light of everything we've been sharing. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Amen. You see, I want to I go back to the fact that Israel is God's firstborn son. Israel is God's firstborn son, and you get the right... You get to be called a son, a brother of Jesus, a brother of Israel, a son of God, if we overcome. Mm. You see, that, that discipleship process, the battleship of God, you know, I've heard it all over. Oh, you know, God's done with Israel. God is done with Israel. He's done. He, God's, God's going to get a new ship, and He's going to call it the church. And that new ship is going to be better than the church. I want to tell you, God hasn't gotten a new ship. He has brought that ship into dock. He is arming that ship with new weapons. He's upgrading that ship with new technology. It's called the Messianic faith. And we get to be included in that as sons of God. And we get to participate on that battleship. God's not done with with that ship. God's not done with His sons. And because he's not done with his sons, he's not done with you either. And because you get the opportunity to suffer, just like Jesus suffered, you get the opportunity to participate in the divine nature of God so that you can be called a son of God. I want to tell you that the glory of the battleship is after the war is won and the treaty is signed and you're inspecting the hits that that battleship has taken. Amen. The glory in the battleship is in the damage that it has suffered. I don't know about you, but I want to go into battle. 
I want to suffer with Jesus. Like Paul said, I want to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I want to bear in my body the marks of Christ. Because I want the glory of being a battleship going back into harbor, looking at all of the wars and all of the fights that have occurred. But through the grace of God, we survived. And we've overcome. And we get to be called a son of God with Israel. Church, we are in a war. Don't leave here forgetting that. Don't go to lunch and forget the fact that we are in a war. Don't leave here and fellowship tonight and talk about all of the wonderful things in the world and forget about the fact that we are in a war. We are going to suffer and yet we will overcome because He is the great admiral of the armed armada. You see, nothing can hold back our weapons of warfare because we have the ability to be on His sonship with His people Israel. Amen. God has promised that that ship will never sink. That ship will never sink. Are you following with me, church? The ship that is Israel will never sink. And we get to be included in that ship. We get to participate. We get to be adopted into that ship. And because we're adopted into the ship that is unsinkable, we will never lose. As long as we stay on the ship of discipleship. The process that God brought through Israel. Look at Israel today. Going through unimaginable suffering all around the world. The people that have been persecuted the most in the world are the Jews. And yet God has kept that ship afloat. And you've got to be included in it. And the the whole reason that you are here today is because God kept that ship afloat. And because God kept that ship afloat, He can keep you afloat as well. God will fulfill His promise to you as long as you stay on the ship. Hey, Lenton, that ship is real. (laughs) The thing is, if God did give up on His adopted nation, what would that say about your hope? It sinks. Yeah, you, uh, that ship wouldn't float. I find hope in the history of Israel. I find hope in it. Because when I look at my own history, it's pretty troubling. A lot of people don't like that this little nation in the Middle East is the center of God's eye. And I understand because a lot of people don't like the idea that God took a violent teenager that still looks like a biker and made him a pastor. It's a good thing that it's not up to the people. It's up to God. And he has favor because he has favor. That's why. Yeah. And he intends to show favor to everyone. But it had to start somewhere as an example. And that way Israel is like an older brother. Hey, why don't you stand up for a minute? Man, I didn't even know they stacked ships that high. <laughs> the thing is, stay standing. The thing is, is this brother's not Israeli. But he's entered into the process of discipleship. We're watching him sail on sonship. He will be equipped in three to five years time to be a warship of God. Or he could just go enjoy a membership somewhere. And in three to five years, he'll be exactly as he is today or worse off. See, the armada's got to go somewhere. 
The battleship of God has got to go somewhere. The thing is, is I did know that they stack ships that high. Do you know how high they can stack ships? All the way up to the right hand of God. The Bible says that he will take you and seat you at the right hand of God where Christ is seated. All you have to do is read the book of Ephesians and you will find it. But that's not where we want to end today. We want to end today in in John, the first chapter, John 1, and in verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become sons of God. I'm looking around and I've seen some brothers transform. I won't pick on any of you that have this in your past. I do. I've been given rights before. I know what it is to have my hands on a wall. Somebody kick the insides of my feet. Hear the cuffs come out. And the first words out of their mouth. You have the right to remain silent. Let me tell you, that's the first lie you've ever been told. If you're in Christ, you have no right to remain silent. If you are in Christ, you have one right to become a son of God who is like his father. You do not have the right to remain silent. Your Miranda rights don't apply in Christ. In Christ, you have the right to become something, but you do not have the right to be silent about it. But you do have a counselor appointed for you since you can't appoint one. You can't afford one. The cost was too high. Your blood was already tainted. So a counselor has been appointed for you. But the counselor himself will tell you what to say. He will not allow you to be silent. He'll say, speak up because you are a son. Fight for them. Rescue them. Go and throw yourself into that situation like I threw myself into your situation. Contend because your father contends. See, that's what it means to enter into discipleship. You cannot be in discipleship if you are not at war making other Christians. You have to go attack the gates of hell. You have to liberate those who are becoming sons of God. Evangelism is not the domain of a select group of men. It is the full-time occupation of every Christian on earth. It's the full-time occupation because you are a son. And the best son wants to be like his father. Israel was adopted as a son. Jesus, their king, the king of the Jews, is the best example of the right hand of God, a son there has ever been. And do you know what? He didn't go hide in a hole. He died in a public fashion that you might become a son of God. How dare we take the sonship of God and wreck it on the rocks of apathy. Today I'm making an appeal to you. We've been hearing it. We've been hearing it in the last several messages. We've been hearing it from our newest believers all the way up. We're going to have to do the things that Jesus did. Israel's a son of God. Jesus is a son of God, and you are sons of God. How would anybody know it if we don't act like our Father? It's not a personal or private matter.
It's not for the weak, meek, mealy mouth Christian. We think that's godly. It's not. It's for the forceful who will force their way into the kingdom. They have all of God's power at their disposal, but they only operate under his control. It's not godly to sit back and shut up. It's godly to stand up and be counted as a son in the holy family. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand up, but I'm not actually asking you to just get on your feet. I'm asking something on the inside of you to stand up. I'm asking something inside of you to leap so that when your feet move, they're inspired by faith to make a change, to be transformed, to head in a new direction, to never look back. And the problem is many of you have heard these kind of altar calls so many times before. And yet there's a moment when a son actually becomes the son he's always been called to be. A miraculous transformation. Maybe you've been wrestling with God all the way through the night, but it's daybreak now. It's time for the name to change. It's time for the prince with God to rise. When I ask you to stand to your feet, do not look to your left. Do not look to your right. Don't wait to see what others do. That is an entirely different group. Where's everybody else a member? I want to be a member where everybody else is a member. A member of a popularity club. Without regard to a single other person in the room, do you know what you must do? Exactly what the Spirit of God leads you to do. The second that you rise to your feet, something ought to rise inside of you and you ought to run to the will of God. For some of you, that's found at this altar. For some of you, it's found out in the parking lot. For all of you, it's found in your life outside this room. But it has to start somewhere. The Spirit of the living God is heavy upon us, and He has been since the first chord of the first worship song. As a pastor, it makes me want to weep with joy. He's treating us like sons. Today, let Him find His sons obedient. Please stand to your feet. Father, we ask now in your name that the spirit of sonship would move us, that the spirit of sonship would take us deeply into discipleship. Lord, that our discipleship would result in evangelism, that we would be warships at war 